You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre Books. It's an imprint of Prometheus Publishing. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. Very glad to be here. Lou, um, we were talking about three writers, Adrian Tchaikovsky, Joel Shepard, and James Enga. These guys are all doing some very interesting kinds of fantasy, and you uh, made this uh, interesting uh, comment that you thought the three of them formed a triangle. Could you explain to me what you mean by that notion? I like that idea. Yes, absolutely. They're all three very different writers. Uh, Ng uh, has two books on the shelf now. Shepard's first fantasy novel, Shepard's military science fiction series has been out for a while, but his first fantasy novel just came out. And the Tchaikovsky, the first three novels in that series will be out in March, April, and May. So he's not out yet. But they... um. They're all very, very different and all very, very good. I'm, obviously, I'm biased, but they're very, very good. I'll start with Ng. Ng is writing... Ng's last name is a pen name. Um, it is a, I believe, Scandinavian word. I may be wrong about about uh, which language it is, but it basically means, a, as he's explained it, something like a thing being true to itself or a thing being its own nature. And Ng is very much a fan of the, the, the concept of deep genre, that genre needs to be unapologetically genre. When he reads genre, he says he wants things that, you know, he wants his science fiction to be science fiction. He wants his fantasy to be fantasy. And Ng's novels are absolutely, you know, they're not new weird. They're old weird. They are, they are, they are the, the 21st century uh, extension of or outgrowth or child of Fritz Leiber, Robert E. Howard, mm-hmm, C.L. Mm-hmm. Moore, Michael Moorcock, you know, they are swords and sorcery as it would be done in the 21st century. Uh, his lead character is a guy named Morlock Ambrosius, who is the son of Merlin Ambrosius, but it's not our world. It's a secondary world. And uh, he is the master of all magical makers. He is the greatest swordsman alive since he killed the previous greatest swordsman after he was taught by him. And he is a exile from his homeland and a bitter, dry drunk. And uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a hunchback. Um, he's hundreds of years old. And in, a, in an odd way, shares some similarity with Doctor Who, in that if you've watched the new Doctor Who series, he's got that aspect of the lonely god, the, the most powerful being in that universe, who nonetheless is a, you know, a fraction of who he would have been had he not been broken on the wheel by some tragedy in his past. A sort of uh, feeling uh, of both great power and, and, lo- and, and loneliness. Yeah. Loneliness and missed potential. Mm. And, uh, and like Doctor Who, since t- seems to accrue people who are f- at first afraid of him and then uh, fanatically devoted to him. And like Doctor Who, although James doesn't watch the new show. These are just coincidences and, and ways to get a handle on things. Like Doctor Who as well, it's dangerous to be around. Mm. You know? Not for his own sake, but because of the, the, the death that, that follows in his wake. I tell people, and, and it's, I, I started saying this as a joke, and I've become convinced that this has to be it. If it were ever a film, it would have to be Hugh Laurie with a black sword. And, and Hugh Laurie in-house, the drug dependencies, 
the, the attitude, the obnoxiousness, the growl, the gruff personality, the unkempt look with Stormbringer in his hand. <laughs> well, that's in a way that's almost how he, how you imagine uh, Elric himself as well. He, yep. He's not he's not the happiest camper in the world. No, no, Elric is probably Hugh Laurie's a teenager. Mm. Um, but so this that that's that thing. Mm-hmm. So and he's magnificent, and the and the and he takes fantasy tropes and spins them in ways you've never ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also has a marvelous ability to be hysterically funny on one page and then do something so haunting and uncomfortable that you just feel like you seared the back of your eyebrows and you'll never get it out of your head. And there's a, he has a nice uh, political edge, too, I think. You know, there's a lot of resonances with current uh, you know, political situations, I think, in his stuff. Well, the book he's writing now, uh, book three, the tentatively titled The Wolf Age, um, Morlock travels far up north into werewolf country, and they can't eat him because his blood boils, burns with contact with the air, so they don't really know what to do with him. And so he's stuck in werewolf country, and werewolves are a democracy. They're a reputation-based society where the person with the biggest, baddest reputation has the most votes, hmm. and it's election time. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. Now, the way this book is still being written, um, he references the strange gods in the first two novels, mm-hmm. and I've been asking him more and more about who the strange gods are and what they are, and... Uh, the strange gods have taken an unexpected role in book three that wasn't that wasn't in debrief. They're um, having a bigger and bigger and bigger part of the novel, mm. and they're these weird kind of almost quasi posthuman things. Mm. And I'm really really excited to find out more about who the strange gods are. I'm just getting snippets from James as he finds out himself. That sounds like so, fun. You know, <laughs> the novel might need to be retitled "The Strange Gods" by the time it's completed. But strange gods, werewolves, and steampunk airships—they're powered by ghosts. You know, how can you go wrong with that? I can't imagine going wrong with it. It sounds uh, like our world. <laughs> 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 only, only more entertaining. Yes. So then Joel Shepard. Mm-hmm. Shepard, background, political science. Um, also in women's, he, he covered women's basketball for years. I get tons of, uh, of uh, emails, and so does he, from women who say, wow, you can really write for a woman's voice better mm-hmm. than most men. How do you do it? And the reason is, is because he covered women's basketball for years. And so, you know, in his military science fiction, when the, when the team come back and go in the locker room and take off their guns and their bulletproof vest and talk shop, you know, it, it's very, very authentic because he's been there in the locker room watching the basketball players talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I always feel like when I read Joel, I need a break from everybody else's fantasy because everyone else seems so politically naive in mm-hmm. comparison. Um, you know, when Joel creates a country, he doesn't. It, it's not a monoculture. Mm. He'll create the country, and the ruling class may be. And it, well, for instance, in, in the book Sasha, mm-hmm. the ruling class, the Verathanes, are not the same ethnicity as the underclass, the Goranya. The Goranya are pagans, and the Verathanes are. It, it, it doesn't have a close parallel with Catholicism, but it's a big organized hierarchical church. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a bit like well, the British were important. They're princes from Germany for a while. Mm. So they're not the same <laughs> ethnicity. Uh-huh. Now, that's just one cultural division. Then the people in the city will have differences from the people in the country. The people on the borders will have differences from the people in the center. The people on the borders may feel closer to the neighbors right across the border than they do to their own class in the center of the country. Mm, and mm. all of these political situations are playing out on the, in this country and in the country next to it and on the country on the other side of it and on the country beyond that. Um, 
within that framework, he's also really, really good at the interpersonal politics. Mm. You know, I need to pick three guys and go find the wolf that's killing people in the next village. Who I pick, how they feel about me, whether or not one of them wants my girlfriend, you know, all of this is going to come into play. Mm-hmm. No one, every single conversation has nuance and context and subtext and a backstory. Mm-hmm. And uh, you read it and you're like, yes, this is how people really, really are. Mm-hmm. You know, this is exactly right. And, um, and then everyone else seems reductionist and simplistic and, and idealized by comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's gotten, uh, the, almost all the reviews that have come out so far are all saying, hey, this is a great thing for people who like George Martin to read while they're waiting on George Martin. Mm-hmm. which, you know, we're not complaining about that. <laughs> not at all. And um, his story, the Linnaeans are a Highland people. Um, Twenty years ago, a guy came in named Kessler and helped them win a big decisive battle. And one of, he's a great general, and one of the reasons is, is that there's no magic in this world. The only supernatural element is that there are a race of sort of like sexualized non-pointy-eared elves called the Saren. And they have worked out a martial art, uh, Joel based on a specific martial art, but I can't remember which one right now, that utilizes martial arts and sword fighting. And so when that is introduced into a world of broadsword fighting, mm. you, you know, they're unbeatable. And it's simply a, techni- it's a technique advantage, an advantage of technique it's that a technology. no one else has come up with. In What's a sense. That? It's a technology. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so this guy comes in and helps the, 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 the Linnea win their war. Twenty years later, he is training the king's son, and the son is killed. And the son, and they have a, young, a daughter, not the youngest daughter, one of many, many children, kind of a marginalized, tomboy, always-in-trouble girl. And she idolized her brother and can't get over his death. And in the wake of his death, she asked the teacher to train her. And so he starts training her, and he finds out to his surprise that she has great potential. And she, he asks the king for permission to train his daughter. And the king really can't say no. The guy's never asked for anything. Mm-hmm. Saved his ass 20 years ago. Okay. And so this girl, Sasha, now has a sword-fighting technique that no one around has. Mm. And it's very realistic. You know, it's, mm-hmm. not, uh, it's not Buffy. She hasn't been supernaturally bequeathed the magical ability to kick ass. Mm-hmm. You know, if she dropped her sword and she was facing a 300-pound opponent, she'd get her ass kicked, mm-hmm. just like I would if I was facing a 300-pound opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not supernatural. She's not doing wushu cartwheels in the air. She can really fight with a martial art using force and motion to turn that 300 opponent's size into a disadvantage mm-hmm. and kill it, and she's unbeatable. And uh, the king and his, his now oldest son are planning a religious war against the Saren in the East. Uh, it's sort of a let's go reclaim our Holy Lands thing, but just like the real one, it's really let's go take advantage of their technology, let's go take those lands, let's open up new trade routes, let's, we're jealous of their success. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, ostensible reason is military, but the real reason is economic. It's always more Always, than always. <laughs> so this puts her in conflict with her family. Hmm. And in the second book, we travel to a, the land of the city of Petrador, which is a very uh, sort of Italian Renaissance meets one of those wonderful Greek island cities that start at the port and go right up the hill with houses built on top of houses. And in that book, mm-hmm. they're there to stop the trade 
coming, the weapons trade coming through, hoping they can stop the war, you know, by nipping it in its economic bud. And we get into a civil war between classes up and down the hill. Mm-hmm. And it's just magnificent, you know, and it's so literalized with the ruling class up top and the people in the port below and fighting in all these tight, narrow streets that goes on for like 100 pages. And it's really just one of the most magnificent things I've ever read. Sounds this, this sounds very interesting because I, I one thing that interests me about uh, fantasy, and I, I was thinking that the the idea that we're also interested in these fantasy worlds that where realistic things happen that we can can relate to in worlds that we can't really understand suggests that I think that the reason we like to read these sort of things is because we're uncomfortable with our own world and really feel we don't understand the giant bigger forces at work so. Reconstructing a fantasy world in these kind of novels, I think, makes us feel more at ease reconstructing our own world. I think so. I am uncomfortable with labeling this stuff escapism. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't think it's escapism at so all. So much I of think... it is uncomfortable. So much of it is non-consolatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I'm uncomfortable with the, you know, in so much television science fiction, we travel to the ends of the universe to be reassured that there are people there who live in modular families and have the same values we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that drives me crazy. Mm. And I think it's a combination of wanting something strange and new and delightful and also wanting to pick at the, the, the things that concern us. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Um, well, we want to be able to, to, to approach our own problems from a... F- Fresh perspective, which I think is is what we that's that's what good writing's about. Whether it's just writing about other people in a you know um, mimetic, mimetically realistic novel about uh, you know people in the suburbs having problems, or writing about the you know, the perils of a woman who's an unbeatable swordswoman in a fantasy world. There's there's in reconstructing that world, whether it's a mimetic world or a world, you know, created out of whole cloth by a writer, and I think the worlds created out of whole cloth um, allow us more to really rebuild our own world, in a sense. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, oh, I need to add to this, she's not unbeatable with anyone who knows the technique. Mm, she's mm. pretty damn near the top of the people who know the technique, but as she gets closer to the Saren territories in the book, she's also meeting more and more people who can fight as well as she can. Now, um, again, there's nothing, there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing. There's mm-hmm. nothing. You know. Um, there's no. There's no messiah thing in this. Mm-hmm. Um, no. No unrealistic messiah thing. Um, the Tchaikovsky. Whew. Uh, you know, if Ng is the guy whose imagination is so incredibly unbounded, giving us all these cool monsters and settings and creatures and just, just, just a bestiary of, of things you've never seen before. Uh, and Joel is is the political master who's, who's giving us human nature as it is in a fantasy setting, then Tchaikovsky may sit right between the two of them. Mm. Uh, he's created a world where he's thrown out all of the old uh, elf-dwarf tropes, although there's nothing wrong with those tropes. They're coming back. But um, he substituted them, human beings who have based themselves on archetypal insect culture and over the centuries have evolved to be like those insects. Mm. So you have ant people who are all telepathic, ants are fantastic soldiers, they all march in line. They, you know, If you attack an ant on the right, the ant on the left is able to warn him, so it's very hard to predict what ants will do because they fight as a unit, as if they had one group mind. You have dragonfly people, 
very good flyers, very elegant, very fashionable, very pretty, very wonderful swordsmen. You know, they may map onto the elves. Uh, you have spider people who are, uh, you know, courtly and backstabbing and love all of the intrigue and uh, and double dealing and 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 just courtly politics. And you have the beetles, and the beetles are artificers. They're squat, they're dark, they're heavy, they're not good flyers, they're not elegant, but they understand machines in a way that nobody else can. Hmm. And the setup is you've got an area called the Lowlands, which is a number of disparate free cities. And they war amongst themselves from time to time, particularly ant cities attacking each other. But for the most part, they get along. And then there's a place called the Collegium, where the college is. And if the ants map onto the Spartans, then the college maps onto Athens. Mm -hmm. And anybody can study at the college. Now, there's still racial prejudice. So, like, there's a character who's a half-caste, you know, biracial, and he's allowed to study there. He'll never be, you know, a tenured professor there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or if he will be, he'll be marginalized. Uh, So there's still racial prejudice in this world, but you can go further here than you can anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Now, up north in the Highland country, a group of people called the Wasps have turned themselves across the last three generations from uh, nomadic hillsmen into an empire. Mm -hmm. And they have started gobbling up territory. Now, they've been having to go north to fight some of their neighbors, but there's a beetle who's a professor at the college named Stinwalt Maker who says, they're going to come south. Trust me, they're coming, they're coming. We need to unite, we need to do something. They're going to come south. And when the wasps finally start coming south, he can't get anybody to care. You know, they just took over the city of Tark. Well, who cares? We hate those guys. Mm, you know? Mm. Yes, but he's coming for us next. Well, he would never come for us. We're busy making all their weapons for them. This if is they... the old first they came for the gypsies uh, trope. Exactly. I mean, Stenwald is very much a Churchill running around going, mm-hmm. don't sign the treaty <laughs> <laughs> with Hitler. He can't be trusted. And the wasps are this wonderful combination of the Roman Empire and the Nazis. And, you know, like the Roman Empire, I mean, they, they take slaves, but then slaves can go quite high. You know, mm-hmm. it sucks to be a slave uh, at the base level, but being Caesar's slave has its privileges. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's got that feel. One of my favorite characters is a guy named Thalric, who is a general in the Retik, which is essentially the SS. And he is the guy who's bought Empire hook, line, and sinker. And he's been and traveled in the lowlands and loves the lowlands and loves the college and knows that they're going to destroy it when they come and ruin what it is that makes it great. But it's all for the greater good of empire. And he gets caught in political uh, infighting inside the SS, inside the Retique, inside the SS, where he may be a casualty of the losing side. And so, you know, you've got these people who are just using the war to line their pockets and he has contempt for them because he really believes the ideology. And he's having to maneuver to stay alive. And you do this wonderful thing where you find yourself rooting for him, you know, so that he can survive all of the, 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 the cuts that are happening inside the retique, mm-hmm. and keep his head on his shoulders so that he can come and fight Stenwald. No, <laughs> it's marvelous when you can take the chessboard and spin it and look at it from the other side and the guy is not just a standard dark lord with no motivations and no sympathies and no personality. Mm-hmm. You know, I love when you can turn the chessboard back and forth and enjoy the book from either angle. And He's actually one of the best characters in the book. Mm-hmm. And some very interesting things happen to him, which I won't spoil. So that's the setup. And then 
on top of that, you know, Tolkien arguably changed fantasy for all time when he took uh, World War II and applied it to fantasy tropes. And mm-hmm. I don't know why it's taken... World War One. I'm sorry. World War One. I. I apologize. I um, don't know why it has taken so long for someone to literalize that. Mm-hmm. But Adrian's done it, because what you've got are these beetle-made, articulated spider tanks laying siege to medieval cities. And you've got people riding out in cavalry to engage an enemy that's just created the Gatling gun. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and the technology starts evolving and changing across the series. In the second book, they invent a weapon that doesn't exist before, and uh, it decimates the army that would have otherwise won. Oh, this so sounds it, fascinating. It really is World War One, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and you've got tanks attacking castles, and you've got people having to come to terms with the fact that the way they fought the war last year is no longer applicable. And it's brilliant, you know. I'm, I can't, I can't. And of course, it's steam-powered fantasy, so you, because the Beatles supply all the steampunk gadgets, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I just think it's one of the most exciting things I've ever read. Um, and so that's my triangle. <laughs> now let's talk about uh, some of the the uh, well. W- tell us a little bit about um, uh, Ilyukon. Uh, you just went to this. I- I've never heard of this convention. Where is it? What was it? And what did you talk well, about there? Why, I, why was this so good? I think that they pronounce it Iluxcon. Iluxcon. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in its second year. It was started by Patrick and Jenny Wilshire. Mm-hmm. It's an invite only, ex- artist only. Um, an exclusive convention. They invite 50 of the, quote, world's top fantasy artists, a number of very high-end connectors, some from as far away as Europe. Collectors, I said connectors. And um, uh, this year, they brought in a number of art directors. Um, that was how I got there. They brought me in, and they brought John Shinahetti from Wizards of the Coast, and they brought a couple guys from Blizzard, and uh, another guy from another video company, game company. And they brought us in to do portfolio reviews of the 80 to 100 art students who were there for the first time this year. And hmm. so that's the group. I don't think there's more than 250 people there. But, um, but they're all serious about art. And I went to do portfolio reviews. And it was a very interesting experience. First of all, uh, just hanging out with artists is marvelous. I, I don't spend enough time just hanging with the art side of this business. Mm-hmm. And I came away from it so invigorated and, and just feeling like, you know, even more opposed to this trend of not putting illustration on a book and just slapping a, a, a stock photo from an image archive on it because science fiction and fantasy has a unique asset that no other field has, and that's our history of illustration and the incredible illustration. And to be there and see the art, I saw, got to see some of my covers. I saw David Palumbo's cover for the Joel Shepard book, Petrador. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I got to see the actual painting, which is about three feet tall, mm. and was the center of his gallery. And it's just magnificent to see it up close. And mm-hmm. Dave Seeley was there with two of the covers he's done for me. And I got to see those up close. And they're like four feet tall. And John Picasso was there. And, you know, and this, this, is, and this is a serious collector cloud. There are pieces going for two and three and four. And I saw a bronze statue go for $7,000. Mm. Um, but so just hanging with the artist was absolutely magnificent and just reinforced how lucky we are to have that as part of our industry. Now, having to quantify my opinions about student portfolio was one of the most educational things I've ever done. Um, 
I get portfolios sent to me mostly by email constantly. You know, multiple portfolios arrive in my inbox every day. Mm-hmm. But I'm never required to say anything more than, thank you very much, but this doesn't fit the needs of our line at this time. Mm-hmm. Good luck. You know, <laughs> having to sit for 15 to 20 minutes with students um, and show them why I would or would not commission them based on the stuff in their portfolio forced me to quantify and articulate my opinions in a way that I have never been required to do before and therefore taught me a great deal about their opinions, uh, my opinions. And, um, you know, it was, it was immensely gratifying when uh, uh, several times I would point something out and someone would say, yeah, that's just what John Shinohetti said. All right, I'm not talking out my butt. Um, <laughs> and I found that I, I most frequently, I would, I, I, would, I would say to people, your characters have come in. I was actually surprised by the overall quality of the work I saw. But I, I frequently would say to someone, you know, your characters have come in and posed in your studio for you on a pedestal. And what I want you to do is take your easel and sneak out and hide behind a bush and paint them when they don't know you're looking. And I responded, and my needs are different from the needs of, some, of, of, a, of a video game art director or a role-playing game art director. Mm-hmm. They overlap, but they're different. Uh, and I found that I responded most to the pictures that had a sense of narrative where you could guess at what had just happened a second before and what was going to happen in the next second. Mm-hmm. And that's what I responded to the most. So you're, you're looking for, for, for pictures that every picture tells a story, as Rod, exactly. Serling, exactly. Or Rod uh, Stewart told us. <laughs> in fact, the Palumbo I mentioned, he had sent me two roughs for that. Mm-hmm. One was uh, Sasha and a friend of hers, standing on the rooftop, swords drawn, one facing left, one facing right, you know, in Batman and Robin hero pose. Mm-hmm. And the other was Sasha bending down over the rooftop in, in this Grecian-like city where the, where the rooftops go behind her all the way up the mountain, pulling the guy up, and his back is to us, and she's bending down to grab his hand with one hand and pull him up, and with the other hand she's got her sword ready. And that's the one we went with because, you know, it, it communicates, like, there's a strong female, she's pulling the guy up. Well, why is she pulling him up? You know, they're obviously spoiling for trouble. They're on the lookout for a fight, and she's helping him up over the roof. I'm, I'm invested in that now. I want to know what the story is. And also, it gives I a do. sense of the division in the city too, from the lower parts, oh, exactly. the dark lower exactly. parts, to the bright upper parts. It's it's a it's a it's a nice illustration. Very, it does really su- uh, suggest w- that there's a story that you want to read, which is that's why you want people to buy the book. Okay. So I don't know how you go to Lexicon unless you're an artist who's been invited or a student who's paid for a portfolio. Mm-hmm. But for those in the audience that, that fit those criteria, I'm sold. It was marvelous. Now, um, let's talk re- very quickly about uh, some of your new uh, releases coming out. I- I'm looking at uh, Clay and Susan Griffith's uh, Vampire Empire trilogy. Yep. Um, you've got uh, Mike Resnick's uh, Weird West uh, book. You have a historical Russian fantasy called Twelve by Jasper Kent. Uh, Mark Hodder writing about Burton and Swinburne. I, I, as an English student, anytime I hear the name Swinburne, I swoon because I really actually liked Swinburne's poetry. Um, it seems, and even down to some of the newer stuff, uh, Cardinal Richelieu's Men with the uh, Pierre Pavel, uh, uh, French fantasists. Uh, I think we've got a, a, a real... Uh, you know, powerhouse, uh, you know, golden heyday of steep steampunk coming, don't we? Steampunk and adventure fantasy. Mm-hmm. I think that we are uh, have already carved out a niche um, in these post-Joe Abercrombie days 
for being a place for gritty, adventurous, darkly humorous fantasy. Mm-hmm. And now I'm moving into steampunk, although I'm moving with both the steampunk and the vampires. I'm getting in, but I'm getting in in an oblique angle. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, you know, the first steampunk that I acquired, was, which uh, was coming out in, in the spring or summer, is George Mann's Ghost of Manhattan. Mm. And that's really post-steampunk. It's, it's the future of George's steampunk world that he wrote for Tora, the Affinity Bridge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a Victoriana classic steampunk 1890s. Ours is the 1920s in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a shadow-slash-early-Batman-like vigilante, you know, fedora and trench coat and guns blazing, who fights crime in a 1920s New York where all the taxi cabs are coal-powered. <laughs> and all his bat gadgets are steampunk gadgets. You know, compressed air canisters shooting fletchets and jet boots. And Well, how can you resist jet boots and, and <laughs> compressed oh, air? You, no, can't. Can't. you can't. can't. You're right. And uh, so that's my, you know, that's how I'm getting in. I mean, we've got Tim Akers' The Horns of Ruin, which is sort of steampunk urban fantasy noir coming up. That's N-O-R-I-D. And, um, and... So I'm still I'm continuing that way to get in. So like mm-hmm. Vampire Empire, the vampires have risen up and taken over America and Europe. And there is a polyglot post-European community that is centered around Alexandria, Egypt, which is where everybody fled to. And the America is now down in Mexico. And Adele is the daughter of the emperor who rules from Alexandria, and they're going to wed her to the senator who is the big vampire hunter in the post-American world. Mm. And she's, that's going to, that, that union is going to represent these empires' desire to retake the North from the vampires. Mm-hmm. Only her airship, which is a, not a blimp, it is a boat suspended from a balloon, her airship is shot down over Marseille in vampire country. Mm. And she is rescued by Greyfriar, who is basically the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> he's the guy that can go behind enemy lines mm-hmm. and get the humans out, and he's this mysterious masked figure who fights like Errol Flynn, and he rescues her and takes her deeper in to get out. And uh, she gets to see the behind vampire lines firsthand. And uh, it's magnificent. I mean, it's got, it's got a strong paranormal romance angle, mm-hmm. but it's also got a strong swashbuckling angle. It's got a steampunk angle mm-hmm. with the airships and gadgetry. It's got the vampires. It's great alternate history. It's actually contemporary, but has a Victor- it has a Victorian-slash-Persian feel to it. Mm. And in the second and third books, it really gets political as we get in. You know, the first book really focuses on the romance, Greyfriar and Adele. And sets up the world. And books two and three really take us into the world war that's going to be, that this precipitates. Hmm. Just magnificent. You've never seen anything like it. But it pushes all the right buttons. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about Mike Resnick's uh, novel, particularly that you're going to have interior illustrations by uh, Seamus Gallagher. What, yes. Tell us um, about that. Are, are they uh, line drawings or are they are you yeah, going to have Yeah, black plates? and white line drawings. He's doing mm-hmm. the cover, too. I've got them in. They're incredible. Oh, cool. Um, they're magnificent. Seamus, well, let's go Mike first. Mike, I was thinking about the fact, it all began with anyone who has seen Serenity and Firefly and also read Santiago, there is no way you cannot draw the conclusion that Josh Whedon has read Santiago. 
Mm-hmm. You know, serenity is the expression. Uh, it's the Matrix. Is Philip K. Dick and William Gibson ripped off and filmed? Then Serenity and Firefly is Mike Resnick's birthright universe. I mean, this is the universe where a guy's cheated you at cards, and it's worth it to jump, jump in your spaceship and blast out of the gravity well and chase him two or three planets over to shoot him dead for the forty bucks he stole. You know, uh, <laughs> that's Mike has always been mm-hmm. writing westerns where the horse was the spaceship. And I, I seem to remember at one at uh, the Torcon that he was a big fan of uh, the the Serenity books. Or, no, he's not. <laughs> or, or not to, oh no, he's not. Oh, he's... <laughs> he he he's he's never seen them. Mm-hmm. Um, watched one and thought it was horrible. Mm. But I'm convinced that the reverse is not true. Mm. Uh, I'm utterly convinced that Whedon has read all the Santiago books. So I was thinking about Mike's roots in classic westerns, and I was thinking about steampunk and wanting to get into steampunk in an oblique angle, and I, talk, I, I called Mike up and said, I got an idea, and you may hate it, but I, you know, have you ever considered doing a Weird West? And we kicked it back and forth for a week, and uh, he got really excited by the idea. He's always wanted to write about Doc Holliday. He said normally when he does a book, he has to go out and research it in the library or something. He's got a huge collection of books about Doc Holliday that he's been collecting his whole life. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that strikes me about the Weird West genre is that, you know, having read the, the Magic Wagon so long ago and Dead in the West so long ago, and I really like those two works by Joe R. Lansdale, I was surprised that that just didn't blow up back in the mid-'80s horror, horror uh, uh, burst. But I think it's, it's ripe to now. So talk uh, about—so you, you managed to uh, talk Resnick into writing something about something he was already interested in, Doc Holliday. Well, as I said, he's always wanted to do Doc Holliday, and I think you're correct. I think the steampunk itself has been around for a while and is blowing up now. And you know, Bone Shaker is Weird West, and I'm, that's one of the top of my list to read if I actually ever, ever, ever get to read anything beyond my own submission pile. And um, and so I think we're just we're just primed; it's coming into its own. But what Mike is doing is uh, Doc Holliday with zombies and vampires mm-hmm. in a Weird West, where the United States is half its current size. And uh, Johnny Ringo has been turned into a zombie to fight them. And I got, uh, there's a guy named Seamus Gallagher. Uh, I found him just surfing online. And he's a concept illustrator. He's never done book covers, although he was involved in the Dabble Brothers uh, comic of the George R. R. Martin series, comic series. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that actually came out or not, because you hear interesting things about them from time to time. But um, I saw some of the covers he had done from the Dabble Brothers online, and they were magnificent. And they had a wonderful cartoony feel to it that um, probably isn't right for every book cover, mm-hmm. but for this, which has got that element of tongue-in-cheek, I thought this is, you know, it, it was different enough from what we've done that I wrestled with it. And then I finally decided to take a leap of faith, and I contacted the guy, and he's so nice. He's been great to work with. And he just sent me the interiors two weeks ago. and They are magnificent. There's a shot of zombie John Ringo at the bar with Doc Holliday having shots with a book of Macbeth open on the table because they're both fans of Shakespeare. And uh, it's just going to crack you up when you see it. It's just perfect. And, uh, you know, this is the, the good guy and the bad guy sitting down for a parley before they have to meet the next day and shoot each other. And uh, then there's a shot of the guys at the OK Corral, and they've got kind of they've got very stylized, almost Mexican armor fitted over their trench coats, you know, breastplates and shoulder pads, and they're holding revolvers that have 
the wheel of a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them has the Buntline Special, the title, which looks like something straight out of Dr. Gorblatt's steampunk ray guns. Now, um, tell us a little bit, uh, very quickly, about um, the uh, the Jasper Kent. Where is he from? The UK, I'm guessing. He's from the UK, mm-hmm. and uh, twelve is already out there. Thirteen years later, the sequel is coming out soon. This is again getting into the vampire trope at an oblique angle. Oddly, I'd say getting into the vampire trope at its roots. Napoleon has invaded Russia. They are marching into the Russian winter. The Russians are falling back and burning, as we knew they did, and there are a group of soldiers who've been tapped to stay behind the lines and harry the French troops as they advance in a kind of guerrilla warfare. And they know that they're undermanned, but their assignment is just to make it as hard for the French as they can. I said harry the Russian troops. I mean harry the French troops. And one of them says, you know, I, I know some people that might be able to help. Well, what people? Well, there's some people I know from, from back, way back. They, they helped me against the Turks. They said I could call. And... Uh, well, who are these people? Well, they're good fighters. They're very good fighters. Um, they don't want to fight with us, though. They just want us to meet them at night because uh, they like to fight at night and sleep during the day. And we'll, they'll tell, we'll point them at the French, and they'll go kill the French for us at night. And that's how they like to work. And you can guess who the people are. Mm. And uh, they show up. There's 12 of them under an old man who is their leader, and the old man is very... Uh, Eastern European and elegant and creepy, and says, "These are my twelve disciples. I've, you know, they, your name, their names you can pronounce. So we've named them after each of the disciples for, for for ease. And Judas will be in charge, but don't worry, don't worry, he won't betray me. And you can network with Judas and send us out to kill the French because that's what we love to do. And don't worry, you don't have to compensate us. We we, we take compensation where we find it. And uh, it's just magnificent and horrific. Oh, that and sounds it, like it, fun." You know, it's a deeply, deeply researched look at, at Napoleon's invasion of Russia. I mean, mm. I really feel like I have a, a grasp on those historical events far beyond anything I ever had from reading this. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it takes vampires right back to their roots, not as romantic boyfriends who won't bite your neck, but as really scary, scary monsters like mm. they were, like mm. Dracula. I, and, well, uh, I prefer the scary monster version. I was always up, and that's one of the things I always loved about uh, the Brian Lumley Necroscope books. So those vampires were, were not, they were not going to ever be your friends. No, neither were these. And, you know, and it's also got a wonderful examination of morality, which is what, you know, the, the, the lead is compromised. Um, he's a guy who has a wife in St. Petersburg and a mistress in Moscow and has absolutely no desire to ever, to, you know, choose one over the other. And his moral compromises along with the moral compromises they're having to make with work with, to work with vampires, form a lot of the, you know, it's a great psychological Russian novel. How could it not be? <laughs> with with uh, vampires, of course. Exactly. Now, the tell only us thing bit. that would have made crime and punishment better is if it had a vampire in it. <laughs> well, in a sense, it did. Yes, yeah. Um, it, tell us a little bit about Mark Hodder's Burton and Swinburne. Oh, this is magnificent. Sir Richard Francis Burton. Um, who in our own history is an absolutely fascinating character. You know, went and uh, found the source of the Nile, then found out his partner found the real source of the Nile. Partner shot self or maybe was shot 
in mysterious circumstances descended into alcoholism. But in this world, which is not the Victorian age, it's the Albertine age, mm-hmm. because Victoria died in the assassination attempt in our world. They got her in this one. And all changes descend from that. Mm. And this one, he is resurrected from his alcoholism as a spy for King Albert. Mm. And it's a world in which Charles Darwin has become Dr. Moreau. <laughs> and uh, well, many people would say that's this world. <laughs> yeah, and um, and there are there are technologists who are who are creating these wonderful steampunk contraptions on the one hand, and then there are the uh, geneticists. I forget what they call them, but the geneticists who are creating these animal-human hybrids on the other, and uh, and that's the backdrop. And he sent, he sent me a 30-page pitch and then a 30-page short story he'd written with these characters as proof of concept. And it was magnificent. You find out in the short story that um, they've engineered these marvelous parakeets to be messenger birds. Once they've met you once, they can find you anywhere within the confines of the city of London, wherever you are, and take a message. But you never, anytime you introduce a change into a species, there's always an unforeseen consequence. And in this one, it's that the birds insert expletives every three to four words. <laughs> so... I say, Rick, would you like to come over and have tea for me today at 3? And the bird arrives and says, Rick, you motherfucker, do you want to come have some tea? You shit for brains at loose. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the people of London have just decided to roll with it. And, uh, and also the birds make up expletives all the time. They make up their own invented curse words. And mm. So collecting what the birds say are hysterical. And in, the, in the short story, there's a scene where they're chasing a guy who's escaped on a genetically engineered giant horse that are used to... Um, to pull things through the streets, like trucks. But the side effect is that the horses are incontinent and they have massive, massive bowel movements. <laughs> so they've had to create this this fleet of steamed-powered robotic crabs. Yes, steamed crabs. That are following the horses all the time and scooping up the offal. So they're on giant flying birds, tracking the bad guy by following where the crabs go to pick up the droppings from the horses escaped on and using these parakeets to fly back and forth between <laughs> between the, the, the team carrying messages. You know, there he is, he's turned down that street, let's head him off there. Only the birds keep sticking curse words in between every other word. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. But he does what so, you know, a lot of people just take the iconography of steampunk, the set pieces, and they plunk them in willy-nilly just to say it's steampunk. Here's an airship, here's a pneumatic man, here's... Here's a brass goggle. What he's done is he's worked it back to the one point in history that changed and then rolled it forward so it all makes sense. Hmm. And uh, I think the back of the book will probably have a list of all the Uchronia and how it differs from our world. Um, you know, this is what happened to this guy in our world. This is what happens in this world. And uh, so he's really justified the steampunk in a way that I haven't seen done before. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. He's um he's a Sexton and Blake expert. He runs the Blake and Blake Guiana website. Mm-hmm. That's the main source for Sexton and Blake. On, but it's the main source for Sexton and Blake actually. Well, this is fascinating. Now, um, uh, you also have a, let, let's wrap this up with a with a quick look at the French guy you've caught, Pierre Pavel. Pierre Pavel. Oh God! You know, one of the hardest things in my business is to read something, fall in love with it, and not get it, and then I never know what happens in book two. And this is the one where I was just like, my God, if we don't, if we don't get this book, I'm not going to be able to live. Um, it's the Three Musketeers with Dragons. 
Mm. It's, it's French. It's the era of the, mus- of the Musketeers. But Colonel Richelieu has his own fighting force mm-hmm. called, called the Cardinal's Blades. And they were helping France in the war with the dragon kind. There are dragons who can appear human. And uh, they have been helping the Spanish against the French. And the Cardinal's Blades were disbanded and disgraced ten years previous when they were sacrificed as political scapegoats in an undertaking that went sour. And it starts out when Richelieu calls in the head of the Cardinal's Blades and says, I want you to put the team back together. And he basically says, go after yourself. And then Richelieu pulls out a card and blackmails him into doing it. And so he goes and reassembles the team, and you see what they've all you know, come to. Some are doing quite well, and some are completely lost without a purpose. And he reassembles the team for the first battle against the dragons. And it is, it is swashbuckling three musketeers, Alexander Dumas' goodness with dragons. And I'm just in love with it. What more can you ask for? It's a steampunk renaissance with uh, Pyre Books. I've been speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of the Pyre Books imprint for Prometheus Books. And as you've heard, there's a, quite a wealth of great uh, steampunk writing coming out next year. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be talking to uh, Lou again because we have a very important conversation that we need to have about glossy book covers. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.